Amen. Revelation chapter 10 today, Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. With this chapter, we come to the second interlude of the book, or of the parenthesis, second parenthesis of the book. The first parenthesis, the first interlude of the book we saw in chapter 7. There it appeared between the sixth and the seventh seal. This one now we find in chapters 10 and 11, and it's between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Interesting to see how they both appeared between the sixth and seventh of the series. Now, the structure of Revelation, which we've given to you in this outline, if you have it there in your Bible or handy, you can pull that out, we saw is based on the seven-sealed book that contains the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven vials of judgment. But within this main structure, we have these interludes. And these interludes give to us supplemental material. This supplemental material gives important additional revelation and explanations that are related to these judgments and to the plan and purposes of God. And so these are very important to the development of the message of the book of Revelation. The interlude of chapter 7 provided important supplemental revelation concerning the protection of the church. You remember that? The sealing of the 144,000. And then we saw also in that interlude the glorious picture of what happens after those who are in the Lord die, or those who die in the Lord. And the glorious intermediate state was given. And so in the midst of all this judgment and persecution against believers, we learn that God is in the midst of his church, protecting his church, and leading his church to their glorious destiny of the intermediate state. Now we come to the second interlude, and this one has three sections. First is in chapter 10, the mighty angel and the book that's in his hand, the small book in his hand. Then in chapter 11, we have two aspects of the interlude. We have, first of all, John being commanded to measure the temple, and then secondly, we have the two witnesses. And that takes up those two parts of that chapter are chapter 11, verse 1 through 14. Today we'd like to look at the angel in the small book. And I'd like to read the passage. As I read this, let us remember that what's given to us here is helping to prepare us for the sounding of the seventh trumpet. This interlude is placed strategically to prepare us for the sounding of the seventh trumpet. We had the sixth trumpet in chapter 9, the end of chapter 9. Now we have an interlude before we come to the sounding of the seventh trumpet that begins in chapter 11 and verse 14. And so these are in preparation for that. Let me read our chapter. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, 
and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth, and cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and earth, and the things that thereon are, and the sea, and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, and said, Go and take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel, and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it, and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter. But it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So let's look now at this interlude, chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. First of all, we have the mighty angel and this small book. John says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven. Now there is division among the interpreters and commentaries of the book of Revelation concerning the identity of the mighty angel. Some identify him as one of the great angels, perhaps an archangel of God, perhaps Gabriel. Others take the view that this mighty angel is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now the designation of this being as an angel does not settle the question. So well, does it not just settle the question? No, it does not. The word itself, Old Testament and New Testament, means one who is sent as an agent or an envoy by someone else, particularly as a messenger. A messenger in the sense of a representative who speaks for the one who has sent them. And so the angel can apply to any of God's servants. In fact, it's applied to the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Isaiah, where he's called the servant of the Lord, but more specifically, where he is called the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And it is agreed by nearly all interpreters that the Son of God, before his incarnation, so we call this the pre-incarnate Son of God, appeared to men and was active among the covenant people as Yahweh's representative under the title of the angel of the Lord. So with that in mind, let us consider 
the description, the voice, and the affirmation of this angel, this mighty angel. And from these, we can form our conclusion concerning his identity. So let's go down and look at this now. First of all, the description. We're told in verse 2, excuse me, verse 1, that this angel came down from heaven. This phrase, to come down from heaven, appears three times in the book of Revelation. And each time it refers to a great angel that's covered with divine glory and with great power. Here we're told this angel is clothed with a cloud. Now the cloud is reminiscent of the glory cloud of the Old Testament. This glory cloud, or the Shekinah glory, marked the presence of God in the Old Testament. When the tabernacle and temple were dedicated, and the presence of God came into the holiest of holies, it said there a mighty cloud filled the tabernacle. It filled the temple. And in the first instance, it says Moses could not enter, enter the tabernacle. He could not minister because of the glory of the divine presence under the Shekinah cloud. And then the same thing happened when Solomon's temple was dedicated. The priests could not enter. They could not minister because of this glory cloud. We also have in the Old Testament the presence of the Lord with his people represented by the pillar of fire by uh, night and the cloud pillar of cloud by day. And so the presence of God was represented by this cloud. Interestingly, in the book of Revelation chapter 14 and verse 14 through 16, it says this, And I looked and behold, beheld a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and his hand a sharp sickle. So here's one, later in the book, who is identified with the messianic title, the Son of Man which first appears in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, in a heavenly vision. Here's another vision, one like the Son of Man, just like it says in Daniel 7, and he has upon his head a golden crown, but he's, in, he's enveloped by a cloud. He's on a cloud. Again, I believe that indicates that this is deity. Just like Daniel 7, which was a picture of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we're told here in this description in Revelation chapter 10 that he had a rainbow upon his head. Now, the rainbow is associated particularly with God and his throne. In Revelation 4, 3, we saw there that there was a bow, a rainbow-type beautiful structure over him. Verse 3, And he that sat was to look upon like jasper, and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And so there we have in Revelation 4.3 the rainbow associated with the throne of God. The rainbow was also part of the theophany that was given to Ezekiel, as recorded in chapter 1, when he was commissioned to be a prophet. And the first appearance of the rainbow or the bow in the Bible, was after the flood, and it was particularly identified by God as my bow, my rainbow. It doesn't belong to anybody else. 
but me. And so when we see the bow or the rainbow in Scripture, we should think of God. We should think of his covenant mercies. We should think of his glory. We should think of his throne. Now this mighty angel, it, we're told here, had a rainbow upon his head. Furthermore, his face was as the sun. This same description is used earlier in the book, in chapter 1 and verse 16. Remember when we saw a vision of Christ as he appeared to John at the beginning of the book? The glorified Christ. In chapter 1, verse 16, it says, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance, meaning his face, was as the sun shining in its strength. And so we come here to this chapter and we see that his face was as it were the sun. Furthermore, his feet were as pillars of fire. And in Revelation 1.15, in that same initial vision of the glorified Christ, we're told there his feet were like undefined brass as they burned, or if they burned, in a furnace. So, like a burning brass or a fire. In verse 2, we're told he has a little book in his hand. We'll discuss what that book means, but right now, I want you to know with me that in the book of Revelation, the only other time that we see a book in anyone's hands, it's in the hands of deity. It's in the hands of God. First, in Revelation 5.1, it's the hand of him who's on the throne. Christ comes then and takes that from it, and then it is Christ's hand. The only one who has a book in their hand in Revelation is God. Furthermore, he set his foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. Now, there are various views on what that symbolism indicates. But my own opinion is it indicates sovereignty over wherever the foot is placed. And therefore, the symbolism would be this angel has been given sovereignty, possession of both the land and the sea, which if you think of the creation account means this created world consists of the land and the sea. Well, why do I think that, that the feet being there? Well, listen to this from Deuteronomy 11, 23 and 20 through 25. Then the Lord God will drive out all these nations before you, and you shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. Every place wherein the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. From the wilderness in Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the uttermost sea shall your coast be. There shall no man be able to stand before you. For the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that you will tread upon. As he hath said unto you. And then here's what God said in the renewed promise to Joshua, who became the leader of Israel after Moses' death. As they're just ready to go in the promised land, he says, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that I have given unto you, as I said unto Moses. I think that's the imagery here. This angel's feet are placed upon the sea and upon the earth. God has given it all to him, which reminds me of the words that Jesus said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. It's all mine. The inheritance is his. 
Let's look at the voice. And he cried with a loud voice, verse 3, as when a lion roareth. Hmm, that brings to mind Revelation 5, 5, where Christ was called what? The lion of the tribe of Judah. In the Old Testament, the voice of the Lord is compared over and over to the roar of a lion. Here's one of them, Jeremiah 25, 29 to 30. For lo, I bring evil on the city, which is called by my name. And should you be utterly unpunished? You shall not be unpunished. Let me pause for a minute. This is the Old Testament time when God judged Jerusalem, leveled the city, and destroyed the temple. Back in the Old Testament, because of their apostasy, he sent Babylon against them. And Jeremiah is prophesying of that, but the Lord is speaking. And I'm going to bring evil on this city, Jerusalem. And we bring to Revelation, that's exactly our context. He says, for I will call for a sword upon all the inhabitants of the earth, or literally the land, the land of Israel, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, prophesy thou against them, all these words saith unto them, the Lord shall roar, and that's the roar of a lion, the Lord shall roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall mightily roar. Upon his habitation, he shall give a shout as they tread the grapes against the inhabitants of the land. Jeremiah 25, 29 to 30. This mighty angel roars like a lion. Again, that is the Old Testament image of God's voice speaking out against his enemies. In fact, in Revelation 6, 1, when the lamb who is Christ, has taken the book of the seven seals and begins to open those seals, which we know are seals of judgment. Here's what it says. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. Well, that's interesting because in our Revelation text here today, when this beast roars, which is a roar of judgment, what does John hear? Thunders. Seven thunders. Okay? In the opening of the seal, what does John say he heard? Thunder. This is the voice of God crying out, and the response is judgment. Seven thunders uttering their voice. It's that we hear in verse 4, And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And so those seven thunders utter their voices, John's about to write what he heard. But he stopped in his purpose. He hears another voice from heaven that's saying to him, Seal up what you just heard. Cover it up. Seal it up. It's not for public consumption. Don't write them. Write them not. John says, I was about to write, and I was told not to write them. Now, this phrase, I was about to write, is an important phrase for understanding how the book of Revelation was composed. John is commanded to write 13 times in the book of Revelation. 
First time was in chapter 1, verse 11. And here's the only time he's commanded not to write. But this verse gives us insight in how the book was written. And the reason why I say this, if you've spent much time reading commentaries, perhaps even listening to certain teachers, you hear statements like this. John was a master of literary art. John was a creative writer. After he received these visions, he then went and he began to uh, look for Old Testament images or uh, images from Jewish non-inspired writings on apocalyptic themes, and he created this book. And the literary structure is due to John's genius and, and things like that. I read it all the time, even among conservative commentators. But is that what we should think about this? Did, was John a creative author who pretty much put the book of Revelation in the form that his artistry designed? Did John simply translate the visions into his own forms? I don't think so. Look what this verse tells us. We get the picture that John was writing the contents of the book down as he was receiving the visions. Here he was ready to write exactly what they said. And in the midst of receiving the vision, he's doing his um, common thing of writing it out. Because that's what he was told. To write out what he sees. To write out what he hears. And so here he's doing it. And he's told not to write. The genius of the book of Revelation is not due to John, but to Jesus Christ. He's the literary artist. He's the one who has put this book together in its amazing form and according to its beautiful design. Now, this doesn't mean that John had no part, for when he received the vision, he had to describe it in terms and forms that were familiar to him. But again, uh, we're, we, we do not marvel at John's literary capacities in the book of Revelation. We marvel at Jesus Christ's glorious revelation. Here's what it says in Revelation 1, 1 to 2. This book, we're told as it opens up, is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. John is telling us there that what you have in this book is the record of the word of God that was given to me. The testimony of Jesus Christ that was given to me and all things that were shown to me. That's what the book is about. Because you pay close attention again to that. When the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. That's what the book of Revelation is. John giving his um, written record of what God said to him and what he saw. But he's told not to write it. Seal it up. You're to maintain the secrecy of what those seven thunders uttered. John, do not write it down. Meaning, John, you're not to speak or write of what you heard to anyone. 
That's interesting. One thing this shows us is that there are things of which we are ignorant, but there are things of which we are not to know. God does not reveal everything to us in his word. There are truths, there are things that he is doing that he has chosen not to reveal. Probably the best commentary on this is Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. There are secrets, and they are God's secrets. They belong to him. They don't belong to us, and we shouldn't pry into them. And, you know, one of the problems of men is our curiosity. And a lot of mistakes in theology is based on man's curiosity, trying to understand things that we cannot understand, nor no revelation will never be able to know. There it goes again, Bob. Maybe you could show Timothy how to do it in case it continues. But the secret things belong to the Lord our God. So here's some secret things. At least it doesn't go any further than John. But the things it goes on to say in Deuteronomy that are revealed belong unto us and our children forever. That we may do all the words of this law. So there's the secret things of God that he doesn't reveal, but we're not to be concerned about them. They belong to him. They're his property, not ours. But there are revealed things. And that's what this book is about. These are the revealed truths of God. This is our book in the sense it belongs to us. It was given to us that we might know everything we need to know for life and godliness. It's a wonderful truth. Stick with the book. Don't go beyond it. You'll be safe. There's another interesting parallel to what happens here in this passage before us. When Paul gives his description of an experience that he had, where he says this concerning himself, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it's not lawful for a man to utter. So Paul, in this visionary experience, who was taken to the third heaven, heard things there that it was not lawful for him to speak to anybody else and to utter. And so he didn't do it. It's a little bit of a contradiction, by the way, when people have these uh, near-death experiences, they call them, and they go to heaven. Instead of keeping under wraps what they saw, they write books about it and say all this and that and this and that, which is great deception. Do not read those books. Do not pay any attention to those books. They're not from God. Because if God wanted you to know those kind of things, they would have been revealed in his book. And it's all deception. It's all subtle. It all may sound like sweetness and light, but don't read those books. I don't know what happened to those people. I don't know what their experience was, but it wasn't from God. Don't read them. But what we have and what we need to focus on, what God has given to us is in this book. All things written here and all things legitimately derived from it through good and necessary consequence. You know, it's, it's amazing that even though John is told here not to write these things or to be sealed up, you'd be amazed how many pages commentators spend trying to tell you what they think those voices said. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, for example, one of them thinks that the seven thunders were the seven papal bulls that were 
given by the Pope during the Reformation, because they take, by the way, this interlude to refer to the Reformation. And the little book that's in the hand of the mighty angel is imagery of how in the Reformation the Bible was translated and was now became an open book, and it was handed to the people of Europe through the translation. I mean, all kinds of things. Now, it's a wonderful thing we have those translations, but is this what John is prophesying of? Is he talking about seven papal bulls? You know, the bull were, were statements of judgment by the Pope upon the reformers, and these kind of things. Let's stick with what the, the scriptures say. The seven thunders, we don't know what they spoke of. The only possible deduction that I feel legitimate to make is as thunders are images of judgment, that what John may have heard was seven declarations of judgment that he was not to write down. But we don't know if that's it or not. But they were thunders, he was not to do it. Now at this point I think it's time we can identify this angel. The title, the angel of the Lord, and my angel, and the angel of his presence that are used in the Old Testament of the pre-incarnate Son of God, lead us to believe that what we have here in this passage, particularly there's no difficulty in this regard, to see this reference to a mighty angel being Christ himself. Again, the term angel is used of Christ in the Old Testament scriptures over and over. Secondly, the description of this angel, as we've walked, worked down through it, is filled with the marks of deity. And specifically, it reproduces much of the description of Christ in Revelation chapter 1, 12 through 16, and in chapter 5, verse 5, where he's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And I also think this designation of Christ as a mighty angel fits the revelation of this interlude well. What do I mean? Well, as the pre-incarnate Christ appeared unto Moses to promise Israel's deliverance from Egypt and to commission Moses as a prophet to Israel and the nations, that was at the beginning of Israel's covenant nation history. The angel of the Lord appeared in the burning bush. Okay, that was the beginning of Israel. It was marked by the appearance of the angel of the Lord. Where are we at now in the history of redemption? Where are we at in history and revelation? We are now at the very cusp of the end of Israel as a covenant nation. In fact, the seventh trumpet will announce the end, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And so as Christ appeared in the form of the angel at the beginning of Israel's history with promises of deliverance and aid, he now appears as the angel of the Lord at the end of Israel's history, not as their friend, but as their adversary, not to bring them deliverance, but to visit upon them the righteous judgment of God. So it fits beautifully. The angel was there at the beginning. The angel of the Lord Christ is here at the end. But not only do we see him in this chapter appearing right before the seventh trumpet sounds, we also see him in this chapter commissioning a prophet. Just like he commissioned Moses when he appeared in the beginning to be a prophet, here he's commissioning John. Verse 11, Thou must prophesy again before many people and nations and tongues and kings. Now, verses 5 through 7, the final thing about this uh, angel in this particular 
opening description is his affirmation. Verse 5 depicts the mighty angel in that customary pose of lifting the hand up to heaven and swearing by the name of God. This pose is found in Genesis 14.22, for example, Daniel 12.7, and Deuteronomy 32.40, among others. Lifting the hand is like calling upon God to verify your word. You're taking an oath in his name. Now, some have argued against this angel being Christ by saying that how would it be that God would, or if he's God, if he's Christ, that he's swearing by God? He is God. Well, this really isn't a problem at all. When it says, and he swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven, and the things that therein are, and the earth, and the things that therein are, and the sea, and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Why is there no difficulty in Christ swearing by God? It's because God himself, throughout the scriptures, swears by his own name because there's no one else to swear by. Listen to this. Here's the angel of the Lord taking an oath to fulfill his covenant with Abraham. Now that's interesting because the angel of the Lord, I believe, is the angel here. But here's what it says in Genesis 22. And this is the context where Abraham had commanded to offer up his only son Isaac upon the altar. And he obeyed. And he had his son stretched on the altar. And he was ready to plunge the knife into his breast when he was arrested by the word of the Lord and not told not to do that. But here's what God says in response. And the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn. So here's the Lord taking an oath in his own name. By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. Now remember, the angel of the Lord speaking, and here the angel part is completely dropped, and it just says, says the Lord. Yahweh is speaking as the angel of the Lord speaks. He says, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, And in multiplying, I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemy. Again, the angel of the Lord says, in blessing, I will bless you. He doesn't say, well, in blessing, God will bless you, because he is God. He's the pre-incarnate son of God. Genesis 22, 15 through 17. Now we jump to Hebrews 6, and the writer of Hebrews refers to this event in these words. That is this oath that the Lord took. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. Hebrews 6, 13 and 14. And so here Christ is swearing by himself, or swearing by the Father, which is essentially the same thing. No problem whatsoever. By the way, here I believe we should note the error of those who say, based on Matthew 5.33-37 through 37 and James 5.12, that it's always wrong for a Christian to swear an oath. Here we have an oath being sworn in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 10 by this mighty angel of God whom we believe is Christ himself. 
So if it's, is Christ our example? Is Christ our guide as to godly living and what we should say? Uh, I think so. I know so. Here he is taking an oath, lifting up his hand and taking an oath, swearing. By the way, what is an oath? An oath is the call upon God as the witness to the veracity of your words, the truthfulness of your words. And the full form of an oath is this. May God tear me limb from limb, destroy me utterly, if the words that I now speak are not true, or if the words I now promise I do not fulfill. It's calling upon God to judge yourself for a false oath. Okay? It's a very serious thing. The problem that happened when Jesus and James were dealing in Israel with oaths, is oaths became common, everyday things. Uh, please pick up the bread after, um, after you're done work today, dear. I swear by the God of heaven, I will do that. Or something like that. I mean, that maybe sounds ridiculous, but oaths had come down to such foolishness. They are very solemn events that were... Uh, being attested to, testimony that was being sealed by a self-malediction, that is, bringing God's judgment upon oneself. Furthermore, the the oaths in those days were corrupted because they became very sophisticated in their oaths and used them to deceive. If if you'll study what Jesus said about oaths, he said that some people said, that you, you were bound by your oath if you swore by the gold of the temple, but not if you swore by the temple only. And so what someone would do, see that's an incredibly foolish distinction, but what people would do is they would take an oath, but let's say by the temple or the gold of the temple, and then they wouldn't fulfill it. And the guy says, you promised, you took an oath. Ah, no, really, remember, I didn't swear by God, I swore by the temple. Therefore, it wasn't binding. That kind of stuff. And so Jesus, in that context, James, speaking to the same kind of people, says, don't take oaths. If that's the way you're going to treat oaths, don't take them. Get them out of your daily lives. Let them only be used on those times of great solemnity when you're required to pledge uh, yourself in areas of testimony in court, pledge yourself in a marriage ceremony, take an oath for faithfulness to, in marriage, or in the church when you become a member or you take the office in a church, you take an oath to be faithful to your office. In, in those kind of situations, no problem. But it's when we use oaths biblically ungodly that we have that word. But here's Jesus taking an oath, lifting his hand to heaven, this, this, this mighty angel, and swearing. But now what does he swear? What is this oath about? This solemn declaration. It is such an important declaration that Jesus, is, the mighty angel, is making here. It is so important, he takes an oath to seal it. What in the world could be that important? The time shall be no more. Huh? What does that mean? Well, he, verse 7 explains it further. Time shall be no longer, but in, in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as yet declared to his servants the prophets. 
Now, let's look at this. This is very important. The oath that this mighty angel, the angel of the Lord Christ takes, is that there should be time no longer. The word time here is the word for duration of time. The duration of a fixed period of time. The time of this period, this specific period, which is going to be identified in the next verse, will be no longer. Remember what the martyrs prayed? Lord, how long until you avenge our blood on the earth? Revelation chapter 6. Well, how long? How long do we have to wait? Well, the answer here in part is no longer. The time of waiting has come to an end. But that's not specifically what we're talking about here. The martyrs waiting for vindication. But the time that will be no longer is in verse 7. But, and that's an emphatic contrast. There's a momentous event that will bring the chronology of the period in which the book of Revelation is being written to an end. What is that particular period of time? It's the mystery of God being finished. The time of the mystery of God should be finished. That's the time that will be no longer. The mystery of God no longer will be. It will be finished. Now, what does the word finished here mean? Important word. It indicates, in its basic sense, something being brought to a place where it is fully established and functioning. Fully established and functioning as it ought. So, I swear, I take an oath by the God of heaven that time, the time wherein the mystery of God will be brought to the place where it is fully established and functioning as it ought is about to be completed. Well, what is the mystery? Well, we need to look to the book of Revelation and the, and the New Testament to figure that out. It will be finished when? In the days of the voice of the seventh angel. The mystery of God will have come to its place where it's fully establishing and functioning in the world as it ought when the seventh trumpet sounds. When the seventh trumpet sound? AD 70. The judgment of God is, is, is on Judea. The rebellious Jews and their temple and their city is to be destroyed in 70 AD. That's the date. When this happens. But what is the mystery we're talking about? It's the mystery explained by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 to 22 and Ephesians chapter 3 verses 3 through 4 and verse 9. It's the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is the mystery that was not revealed in the Old Testament. It was a mystery because it was formerly concealed. Now it's fully revealed that Israel will no longer be the covenant people of God and that the church would now be a new body, the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile, in one body in Christ. The mystery of God will be completed. What does that mean? It will be finished. What does that mean? It will be fully established and functioning by the time of A.D. 70. 
That's what Christ says. My church will be established. This is the promise to the church. This is an interlude that encourages the church. With this monumental event in redemptive history, the overthrow of the temple and Jerusalem, the ending of the the Jews in the land of, of Palestine, these momentous events mark something even more momentous. The church has reached its place where it's now a fully functioning, fully established body, and it can now take its own place completely independent of Israel in the world. And so the mystery that's finished is the establishment of the New Testament church. Now that's what you have in your bulletin there, a chart. I tried to put this in terms that might bring this closer to our consciousness of, the, of what this is about, this, this folded up chart. Look at that with me for a moment. What I'm seeking to depict here is what we're calling the transitional period between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. To understand that this is how it works itself out in the New Testament is, I think, very important to understanding the details of the New Testament and some of the phrases that maybe confuse us. The transitional period between the Old Covenant, Mosaic Covenant with the nation of Israel, and the New Covenant in Jesus Christ with Jew and Gentile in one body took time. This was a major change in history. It didn't happen overnight. It actually began with the birth of Christ, with the announcement of the angels. It it happened at the, the time of the birth of Christ when we had... Anna in the temple and Simeon in the temple prophesying that the the promised one was here and he was holding him in his hands. This was the very beginning of the transition from Old Testament to New Testament. And what we have here in this bar here chart is from the 70 years. That's interesting when Daniel talked about weeks as being important in redemptive history. 70 periods of 70 years were appointed for the people, and I think that was fulfilled when Christ was born. But there's another 70th week, as it were, and that is this one, 70 years from Christ to the full establishment of the new covenant. There on that chart, we have some um, dates, just to give you some of the uh, development of these things that were so important if the church was going to be established and finished. The mystery would be finished in that it was fully in place. We have the birth of Christ, B, the beginning of Christ's ministry in Galilee, Samaria and Judea, around 30 B, A.D. 33 A.D., we have Christ's death, resurrection and ascension, his giving of the Great Commission. Also that very same year, which was not many days later, we had Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit and the beginning of the New Testament church, but sadly it also began the persecution of the church by the apostate Jews. Then we have the conversion of Cornelius, a very important event in this transition from Israel to the new Israel, from Jew to Jew and Gentile in Christ. Then we have Paul's first missionary journey. Oh, the, the, uh, the importance of those missionary journeys cannot be overemphasized. They were critical to the finishing of the mystery, bringing the church of Jesus Christ into the Gentile world. We have the Jerusalem Council, where the problem between Jew and Gentile was debated. We have Paul writing the book of Galatians around A.D. 53. Then he wrote the book of Romans. You notice I don't give the date for all the the, uh, 
epistles of the New Testament. But I point those out because they were so important in the separation of the church from Judaism. Luke completes the Gospel of Luke around 61 A.D. And then the book of Acts, A.D. 63. The persecution of Christians begins by Nero in Rome in 64. And then we have the writing of the book of Revelation around 65 A.D. Beginning of the Jewish-Roman War, 66, and then the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Note, some of these dates are only approximate. No one knows for exact certainty of some of these, but they're all close to where they would be. But in that period, there were five things summarizing. There were five things that had to be in place before the mystery could be finished, before the church could be established. What were they? I have them noted there, the writing of the New Testament. Before the mystery was finished, the New Testament scriptures had to be in their hands. Remember, this whole period, the church was in place at Pentecost, but it was being established. The foundations were being laid, and those foundations weren't completed until 70 A.D. The New Testament was completed by 70 A.D., well before it, except perhaps one book, and that was the Gospel of John. But all the three synoptic Gospels were in place that told us all the life of Christ, the book of Acts, the history of the early church. All the New Testament epistles and revelation were completed before that date. Jesus promised the New Testament in the upper room. He said, there's many things I want to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. The church needed the all truth of the New Testament before the mystery could be finished, completed, ready to go. Then we have the establishment number two of the New Testament churches. Jew and Gentile in one body, not the synagogues, but the churches had to be established separate from the synagogues where Jew and Gentile met together in Christ. The Great Commission being carried out in Judea, Samaria, and the inhabited world, that is the Roman Empire and its environs. But as the churches were being established, they also needed to be established in the faith once delivered to the saints that was taught by the apostles and recorded in the New Testament epistles. And by 70 AD, sound doctrine had been hammered out. That's why Paul talks about it in some of the last epistles of the New Testament. That is, the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, where he emphasizes over and over, sound doctrine, sound doctrine, sound doctrine. Because the doctrines were now worked out, hammered out, and the church was ready to take the sound doctrine by 70 A.D. There had to be a definitive number three separation of the church from the Old Testament order. We even see in the book of Acts, Christians worshiping in the temple. Paul taking a vow, going to the temple, offering a sacrifice, all of these things. That had to end. And even more so, the legalism of the false religion and oral traditions of Judaism. The church needed to make a complete break with them. And so the book of Hebrews is so essential to show that all of the types and symbols of the Old Testament order, the Mosaic order of sacrifices and priesthood and temples and tabernacles was all finished. Christ fulfilled it all. The church had to understand that and realize they were a new covenant, not based on the forms and symbols of the old. Furthermore, 
the Jews needed to be offered forgiveness and salvation. They had rejected Jesus Christ. But God in his mercy, in those, that period of time, from the A.D. 30 to A.D. 70, graciously was bringing an offer of salvation to him. You ever wonder why it says to the Jew first, to the Jew first? Is that still in place today? No. But it was during that period of time because they were God's chosen people. The promises that had originally been given to them, and even though they'd sinned, before they were completely, definitively brought to an end, God was offering them salvation from their sins and from their crime of crucifying Christ and inviting them to join into the body of Christ. That period needed to happen. Well, it did and was completed and it was done now. Eighty seventy came It's no longer the Jew first, but it was during that period of time. And finally, their judgment had to fall. Christ had prophesied of their judgment. Part of the transition from the old covenant to the new was the judgment upon those who would not recognize that transition. They refused to stop worshiping in the temple. They refused to stop their sacrifices. They refused to abandon the Mosaic priesthood. Why? Because they hated Christ and they rejected it. And so for the finishing of the mystery, making it absolutely clear that this was the people of God, Jew and Gentile in one body, God dramatically brought the Jews, Judea, the temple, its sacrifices, and the city of Jerusalem to ashes. It was done. Fully finished. The church is established in the world. The transition is over. But you remember the New Testament is written during the transition period. And you'll find things in there uh, that people don't understand. For example, miraculous gifts, speaking in tongues, miracles. They were part of the transition period. The church doesn't need them now. It is fully functional and fully established. We have everything we need. We don't need miracles. We don't need the miraculous gifts anymore. We have the New Testament. When that which is perfect is complete, that which is in part shall be done away. And what's in part was the, 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 the prophecies and the knowledge and the tongues that took place to make up for the whole in our knowledge until the New Testament came. And once that came, all those other things faded away. They're not needed anymore. And so, so much of our um, errors in in application of the book of Acts and some New Testament statements is we don't understand this transition period. And what I'm trying to get across, whether I'm being successful or not, is this. The mystery of God should be finished by the time of the seventh trumpet, which was 70 AD. The church is now fully established in the world. Oh, it's got to grow. It's got a big work ahead of it. We're still doing the work. But all the foundations were there. No more foundations to be laid. Israel is off the picture. There's only one people of God, and that is the church. And that's why I say at the very bottom of this chart, these necessary things were all completed before or at A.D. 70. The mystery of God, that is Ephesians 3, 3 through 6, is finished. That's what Revelation 10, 7 is telling us. And so this is so important The mighty angel, the angel of the Lord Christ, swears to this by an oath. This is no minor event. One of the great epics of all history was A.D. 70. Not so much that it 
was the destruction of the Jerusalem. But it signaled the final and full establishment of the foundations of the New Testament church. And we live in the light of that glorious time. I don't think believers understand the significance of A.D. 70 in the plan and purpose of God. I'm trying to show you a new part of it. It's not just that Israel was destroyed. It's that the church was finished in that it was completed. It's like you don't move into a house until the house is finished, right? That's what you say. Well, did you move into your new home yet? No, no, the house isn't finished yet. There's a transition period. You buy the home, you buy the lot, you hire the carpenters, you go through all that work to build the house, but you don't move in until it's finished. The foundation work is done. I mean, you're, you're there, you're, you're, you might be in there yourself, spend the night here and there helping the work and all these kind of things, but there's a time when it's finished. That is, it's now a fully functional home and you move into it. By AD 70, the church was a fully functioning new temple of God, new people of God. And it went out then in power. And its work, the work of laying the foundation was over. And this is something that God declared he would do through his servants, the prophets. And I really believe this is not Old Testament prophets, but the prophets of Ephesians 2.20 that talk about the foundation of the church that was laid by the apostles and the prophets. Now, in the moments I have left, because this, is, this is, will not take long, I want to move on now to the little book, or small book. What we have here, as I read this earlier, is a picture of John being commissioned to give the revelation that's contained in the small book. He's been speaking about the revelation that he has been given concerning the seven-sealed book, right? That's what we he opened the seal, he wrote that, opened the next seal interludes and all of these things but now we come to a place where a small book is handed to him and I believe this talks about material revelational material that's not included in the seven sealed book John is commissioned to prophesy material beyond that specific event it's related to the event of uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, but there's more to be said as the book goes on than just that. In fact, when we get to chapter 19, this is my understanding at this point. As they say, I'm doing a lot of work on Revelation, and some of my thinking is developing. But from chapter 19 through chapter 20, we have seven things. Seven sound familiar. Seven things that are not about the destruction of Jerusalem, but seven incredibly important things about the church in the inner Advent period is laid out for us in chapters 19 and 20, and then in chapter 21 and 22, we have information about the new heavens and new earth that are not related to the destruction of Jerusalem. And this small book, perhaps, and this is, this is my uh, supposition is this little book is showing that John you have more to speak about than what's in the seven sealed book you have a lot to prophesy on in fact John you're to take it it says and eat it and when you eat it will make your belly better bitter but it will be sweet in your mouth and so John in verse 10 takes the book he eats it in his mouth it's sweet as honey 
but as soon as he eats it, his belly becomes bitter. Bitterness is actually emphasized in this. The structure is that what's called the chiastic structure in language where you have A, point A, then point B, then point B is repeated, and then point A is repeated. So A, B, B, A. Look at this. A, it shall make thy belly bitter. Point B, it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. Then the next thing it says, point B, it will it was in my mouth, sweet as honey. And then we go back to the beginning in point A at the very end here, as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Sweetness first, but bitterness afterwards. You see, it was a sweet thing for John to receive the word of God and be commissioned to preach it. But the experience of preaching that word, John will find out, can be a bitter one. You see, the life of a prophet is both sweet and bitter. It's not all sweetness, and it's not all bitterness. But John is, going, is being told that. This is exactly what Ezekiel was told. In almost exact same terms, when Ezekiel's commissioned, he was told to take the book and to eat it. It would be sweet to your mouth, Ezekiel, but bitter to your stomach. So, almost exactly the same thing. Jeremiah illustrates this principle as a prophet. He says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Oh, this is wonderful. God, you've called me to be your prophet. I'm named as Jehovah's prophet. I have the word of God being given to me. It's the joy of my heart. Well, then you come to chapter 20. That was chapter 15. And John says, I've had it. I'm quitting. You deceived me, God. He even charges God with deception. He said, everybody's against me. You read chapter 20. They were plotting his destruction. Israel didn't receive the word. They they were persecuting Jeremiah. And under the bitterness of it, he was ready to turn in his resignation. It was sweet to be a prophet. But Jeremiah found that in being a prophet, there was bitterness. But John is being reminded of that. It's, you're my prophet, John, and you must prophesy again. There's many things to go. You're not, you're not done when the seventh trumpet sounds. There's more to be said. And here it is in this book. Then in conclusion, this interlude in chapter 10 begins by focusing on Christ and his relationship to Old Testament Israel as the angel of the Lord. I think that's the point here. A relationship that's coming to an end. Because they have rejected him, Christ has rejected them. He will no longer be their angel of God's presence. He will no longer be the angel of the Lord to them. He must now be their avenging angel and their judge. That's why I think it's an angel. He appears as that. Number two, the end of the old covenant is definitively made at A.D. 70. It's the end of Judea. It's the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. So the end of the Old Covenant is introduced here in this interlude. But the end of the 
Old Covenant marks the stage of the fully founded New Covenant. The transition is over. The New Testament church is firm in the world with its New Testament, with its organized churches, its sound doctrine, and its membership of Jew and Gentile in one body. The mystery of Christ, that is, Jew and Gentile in Christ, is now finished in that its foundations are complete. They are the new Israel of God. We've also seen this morning the writing method of John. Just to remember that when you read Revelation, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the literary genius and research of John. We've also learned today that God doesn't reveal everything to us that we might like to know, but he reveals all that we need to know. Some people, if they say to me, boy, I just wish God would have told us more in the Bible. One of my responses is, oh, that's interesting. Have you mastered what he's already told you? You want more? Have you mastered what he already gave you? It's like a student coming to the teacher and said, I want to learn more about this subject, and they haven't even gotten past the ABCs of the subject, but they still want more. I think we've got enough in the Bible to keep us busy. We don't need any more. What we need is more of what we have. So let's be not only content with the Scriptures, but let's be active in understanding them. God is giving to us all we need to know for life and godliness. Furthermore, finally, in the call of John here to prophesy again, we learn here that the word of God is both sweet and bitter to us, just like it was to John. The promises of God, oh, how sweet they are. But the rebukes of God, oh, they can be really bitter. The promise and the statement of God's salvation. Oh, how wonderful it is. But it's pretty bitter to know that that salvation message has to be prefaced with a message of how sinful we are. The gospel is a sweet message, but it begins with bitterness. Bitterness, then sweetness. And the bitterness is you're a sinner. You're under God's condemnation. You're evil from inside to out. You have no righteousness before God. All of your good works before him are nothing but filthiness. You're an evil, lost, condemned, ungodly sinner. Boy, that's bitter. But let me tell you the sweet part. Christ will forgive it all. His blood paid for it all. He'll make you a new creature in Christ. So there's this sweetness. Bitter and sweet. Heaven, what a wonderful story. How sweet it is. Hell, how bitter a message that really is. We think of God's rewards. Oh, it's so sweet to hear how God's going to reward us and bless us for this and that. But what about those bitter parts where he talks about discipline, training, and affliction? Hmm, I don't like that part. You know, some doctrines in the scripture are very hard doctrines. And one of the most bitterest doctrines for men is the sovereignty of God. We love to be in control. We love to affirm that it's our faith, it's our work that saved us. Men love that. But it's very bitter to be told you have done nothing to contribute to your salvation. Nothing. That's a bitter doctrine to most people, and therefore they don't like it. 
God is sovereign. It's the truth. And once we come to really think that through, it actually becomes really sweet. But the bitterness and the sweetness of the word. Another thing we learn about this is that John, here's the word, now eat it. For the Bible to be, or the message that John was given, he had to ingest it. He had to take it into his very being, his person, his mind, his soul. He had to know it before he could preach it. And so for us, the Word of God must be ingested into our minds and into our hearts, and it must be digested within us before it can profit us. This book sitting on your shelf or on your book table or something does you nothing. You have to eat it. It's like a wonderful, delicious meal laying there on the table. It, It looks good. It's filled with nutrition. It won't help you in the least until you ingest it and digest it. So the Bible will not help you unless you eat it. Take it and eat it up, is what God says to us about his word. We must take it in, read it. Another thing about this is the ministry of the word of God, as spoken of here, is both sweet and bitter. To be a minister of the word is something that is a sweet thing. To spend your time studying the scriptures and searching out the wonderful mysteries and blessings of God as they reveal to us in the word of God, it's very sweet to do. To be called by his name, to be a preacher of the word of God, to be a pastor, to be an elder, to be an evangelist. All these things are very sweet to be called to that. But it's also bitter as well. There's a bitterness in that. The bitterness comes when men reject that word and they hate you for speaking it. That you were once their friend, but now you've become their enemy. Why? Did you do something against them that you hurt them? No, you said something they did not like. They took great offense that you called them a fool. Not directly, but you, but you taught from the scriptures said fools do this. And they said they realized that that's what they're doing. They must be fools. You've called me a fool. I hate you. There's a bitterness to, to the ministry. There's a joy to the ministry, a sweetness to the ministry, but there's much bitterness when we see people reject the word. And not only reject it, they turn against us. And all we were doing was delivering God's message. And so the sweetness of being God's messenger becomes the bitterness of being the object of people's hatred against God and his word. But they're both there, always. It's not that one comes, the other disappears. They're all we got to accept it. There's a bitterness and a sweetness. But this really applies to all Christians as well. The degree to which you love the word of God and try to speak it and share it and minister to others and you see their responses and you see their rejection, you also, all Christians, know what we're talking about here. We're all called to be witnesses. We're all called to speak the word. We're all called to be ministers of Christ in that sense. And therefore, for all of us, there's a sweetness and a bitterness to being a Christian and witnessing the gospel and standing for God's truth in the world. 
John was prepared for his work by, he was reminded, there's a sweetness to your work, John, but there's also bitterness. So we as Christians need to be ready for that. Being a Christian is not all sweetness. (laughs) Knowing the word of God is not all sweetness. There's a bitterness to it because of the rejection of that word by men. One other thing here, last point. Thou must prophesy again. Wait a minute, God, I thought my work was over when I was done with those seven seals. That book's done. What do you, what do you mean? i got to come again. <laughs> Speaking sort of lightly there. The point is, the one book was done, here's the next. When that book's done, here's the next. Our work's never over, is the point. Do you ever get that thing? Well, if I just get this job done, then I can rest. And you get that job done, and you don't rest. Because there's more jobs to do. Brothers and sisters, John's work wasn't done when he prophesied of the seven-sealed book. You must prophesy again, John. Your work isn't done when you completed this phase. I know my, my wife and I, I don't know that we ever thought this, but let's just use this for illustration. Once we raise those children, our work's done. Uh-uh. <laughs> they still have needs. They still need our love. They still need our prayers. They still need our support. They still, and we still, need them. The work's not done. Our work as parents won't be done until our life is done. That's just an illustration. There's so much to do. Don't expect your work to be over. Don't be retired. You can't be retired from the work of God. There's no retirement there. And if you try, he won't let you. He'll grab you by the, by the scruff of your shirt and say, no, wait, come on, come on, wake up. You must prophesy again. Get to work. The work's not done, we're told in Revelation 14, 13, until we're with the Lord. Then we rest. But until that day, the work is before us. May God bless his word. Amen. Father, thank you for this interlude, glorious interlude for the church. So we see this amazing statement that when the seventh trumpet sounds, the mystery of God is finished in the sense that the church's foundations are fully laid. It is separate completely from Israel. The new people of God, the new covenant is fully in place. The old covenant has been dramatically brought to an end. All happened in 70 AD. A lot more than just the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But the mark of the end of that period of time, we call the transition from Old Testament to New Testament. Bless our understanding of that, this this mystery that we live now in the era where the foundations are already laid. We don't need to go back and relay foundations. We have it all in the in the New Testament, in the in the church sound doctrine that's been hammered out through the through the centuries. Help us now to take what we have. And continue to build upon that foundation. Not wood, hay, and stubble, but gold and precious stones. And, and then, too, as we looked at John's commission here, the sweetness and bitterness that comes with the word of God and ministering and speaking it. Amen. We pray. Amen.